there's a new pet. Ch-ch-ch-chia. Chia pet, the pottery that grows. It's fun and easy. Soak your chia, spread the seeds, keep it watered, and watch it grow. And now grow a whole collection of fun with chia teddy bears. Puppies, kittens, rams, bulls. There's even a chia tree to keep your pets company. Chia Pets and Trees, the pottery that grows. The Chia Pet and Chia Tree are available at Kmart, Rite Aid, Ames, and Woolworth. Makes a great gift. Ch-ch-ch-chia! One of the most iconic jingles of my childhood. I can distinctly remember watching TV as a little kid, and it seemed like every other commercial that came on was advertising Chia Pets. I remember those goofy-looking plants, the overexcited voice, the time-lapse images of the plants growing, all of it. Yet even in my young age, I was very skeptical of this product. I was never fully convinced by these commercials. I always felt that they looked staged and unauthentic. The pottery bases looked cheap and fragile. The seed mixture looks like a gross paste. <laughs> and I always thought there was no way any plant could actually grow from that concoction. And to top it all off, the whole thing's just ugly. Looks like a giant weed infestation. Except for the Bob Ross ones. Those were awesome. <laughs> but when I first read through Galatians, I could not help but imagine Paul viewing the Galatians in the same way that I viewed these Chia Pets. Here they were, a group of Christians masquerading around in cheap faith, trying to pass it on as something beautiful and authentic. The Judaizers came in and sold the Galatians a cheap and grotesque version of Christianity, and the Galatians bought it. I can just see their sales commercial playing out in my head now. If you Galatians just follow these three easy steps, become circumcised, follow the Jewish law, and follow Jesus, flush, pay, shipping, and handling then you too can become an authentic Christian. However, we're going to read Paul's response in Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. And we will see that we get a very different view on what our Christian walk of Christ should look like. The real path to following Jesus cannot be sold as a cheap, gimmicky product. So let's now, if you would, open your Bibles, and we're going to read what Paul has to say about these Galatians. Sorry, I had to do it. So... Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Well, I don't know about you, but to me, it seems like Paul offers a drastically different perspective on what our Christian lives should look like. Nowhere in those verses did I see anything that would insinuate that our faith journey should be cheap, easy, gimmicky, or self-centered. Contrary to the message of the Judaizers, our faith should be more than just blindly following orders in which we know nothing about. Paul's message in Galatians, especially in these verses, is calling us into an active relationship with not only Christ, but also with each other. Let's take verse 6, for example. There is an obvious relationship that has been established between the instructor and the instructed. 
Now, this is no different than a mentor and their mentee. Now, one might wonder what Paul meant when he says that we are to share all good things with our instructors. So what are these good things? What is, um, what is Paul talking about? So in those days of Paul's time, new Christians would have been expected to be in basic discipleship training with a more experienced Christian. Since the Galatians were a brand new church composed of Gentile Christians, they would have been in serious need of mentorship, which is why they were so vulnerable to the attacks of the Judaizers. In this particular verse, we see the word share, and share translated back to the original Greek is koinoneto. This stems from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. So verse 6 is saying that a student and their instructor should share in fellowship together. Their relationship is not one of the student being a passive pawn and the teacher being an imperious dictator. They are called to work together, teaching and learning from one another. While at the same time, they are both striving to emulate a Christ-like lifestyle. So this is no different than what we have at Oakmont today. Whether it's in our children's ministries, our youth ministries, or our adult Sunday uh, Bible study classes, everyone is at a point in their Christian life in which they're a student, a teacher, or both. Therefore, Paul's charge in verse 6 is still relevant to us. Our students and teachers, no matter the age, are not only encouraged to spend time with one another, but they're also expected to. So let's look back at these good things. Anyone who has ever been in the mentorship position knows the sacrifice that it takes and understands the frustrations and eagerness and wanting to see your student or students succeed. This can be a slow and tiresome process, but when your student makes strides in a positive direction, no matter how great or small, you become totally overjoyed for them. You want to rejoice in their accomplishments for as long as possible and let them know just how proud you are of them. Paul understands the importance of this open dialogue between student and teacher. One without the other is useless, and no progress can be made in our spiritual lives without it. Not too long ago, we took the youth to passport camp at Greensboro College. This was a week-long camp in which the students got to interact with other churches. They participated in large worship settings. They spent time in personal devotion as well as devotion with other churches. They did missions, played games, and got to partake in the other familiar summer camp activities. Now, let me make this clear. I love youth ministry. It is my passion, and I fully believe that God has called me to work with youth. But that was a demanding week. <laughs> there were times when I thought I was going to have to throw some kids out of a window. Gone. <laughs> but I honestly wouldn't be surprised if Pastor Amy never came back from her sabbatical and just dumped all the students on me and didn't let me know. So we'll see what happens. And there were times during the week where I wondered if the students were getting anything out of their experiences. I wondered if I was doing enough as a mentor. And I prayed every night on how I could constantly improve as a teacher to these students. Because at the end of the day, I just wanted these kids to know how much I loved them. I wanted them to know how much God loved them. I wanted them to experience the joys of what it looks like to follow Christ. Well, on the last night of camp, I talked with a few different students, and they told me about what God had done for them that week. They told me just how meaningful the camp had been for them and how glad they were that they went. For some of the students, these revelations were monumental, and they trusted me enough to share that information with me. They were excited, they were happy, they were confused in good ways, and everything that they were feeling, I was feeling with them. This is what verse 6 is all about. Sharing these victories with one another and rejoicing in the fact that God has placed this awesome responsibility of mentorship within each one of us. 
Now, I know I just spent a lot of time talking about verse 6, but I think it's vitally important for understanding the rest of the following verses. As we read in verse 10, and we'll talk about this more later, Paul is expecting us to love others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the ways that we can show this love is by mentoring and fellowshipping younger Christians. However, we cannot effectively begin to do this unless we adhere to the commands of Paul in verses 7 through 9. So if you would look at verse 7, and maybe it's just me, but I get a sense of Paul's grief and strife in the transition verses between 6 and 7. Like any good mentor, Paul desperately wants his mentees to be successful and to be healthy and, and, and healthy fellowship with one another. But he also understands that the Galatians do not quite know what that's going to take. So after having set up what a proper teacher-discipleship relationship should look like in verse 6, Paul begins verse 7 by reminding the Galatians, God is not one to be trifled with. When the Galatians openly chose to follow the teachings of the Judaizers, they were essentially mocking God. Now, mocking God is not something that I actively pursued to do. When I envision someone mocking God, I can just see him sitting there, you know, God's doing his thing, talking, being God. And they're just kind of like, me, 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 me. You know, that's, that's the image I get. And it's kind of ridiculous, but this is essentially what the Galatians were doing. They were in open insubordination to God and were mocking all that Christ had done for them on the cross. And, and Paul was heated about it. Paul's essentially saying, do not kid yourselves. You are mocking the creator of the universe, and you're acting like everything is A-OK. And then he's like, you know what, that's fine. Because what you reap is what you sow, and don't say I didn't try to warn you. Paul is going in on these people, and I'm reading this like, yeah, Paul, you tell them, get them, Paul. How could they be so dense? And then God is quick to remind me that I am not so different from these Galatians. Although my mistakes may be different, they are the same in principle. You see, the problem with the Galatians is that they became confident and content in their disregard for the actual truth. I have a story for you. In the, my first semester of college, I took a class on the New Testament. And I'll never forget the first test that I had in there. Uh, when I was in high school, I didn't really study that hard. I didn't really have to. I was able to make pretty good grades, you know, just being me, I guess. And, and that's just the way it was. That's what I was used to. And then I got to college, and I took that same kind of full-heartedness with me. <laughs> yeah, you see where this is going. And... <laughs> The night before that test, the New Testament class, I was in my dorm room, and I thought to myself, dude, you go to church. It's the New Testament. You'll be fine. I was not fine. <laughs> you see, church is a great place for learning how Scripture can be applied to your life. You learn what certain passages mean to you personally. You learn who Jesus is, all that good stuff you guys are in church. You know you're listening to it. But what church doesn't always teach you, and if they did, I missed that Sunday— is what providence certain books of the Bible were written, uh, what audience they were written for, who the speculated authors were, what the overall theme of the book was, you know, the fun stuff. And so, yeah, I didn't do too hot on my first test, and it took me a long time to learn how to study in college because I didn't have to do it in high school. I had to reteach myself how to be a successful student. And I ended up making a B in that class, along with two other classes that semester. And I think I missed an A by like one or two points. I look back at my transcript, still stings a little bit. And is a B a good grade? Yeah, it's not bad. But did the grade reflect the best work that I could have done? Absolutely not. My lack of readiness and the confidence I had in my unpreparedness really hurt me. The seeds of lackadaisical study patterns that I planted in high school had finally bloomed in college. 
and I was unprepared to taste the bitter fruit that they produced. What the Galatians and I had in common is that we were openly mocking our higher authorities. I disrespected my professors by not giving their classes the respect and attention that they deserved, and the Galatians disrespected God by not adhering to and believing the gospel that Paul had previously preached to them. So when Paul says that we will reap what we sow, this is not a threat. It is a promise. Paul is reminding everyone that if you plant something, no matter what it is, it will eventually bloom, and you will be left to eat what has blossomed. We cannot fool God by saying we will plant one seed, but then plant something totally different. The content of the seed does not change depending on what package it comes in. If tomato seeds come inside of a sunflower seed package, no matter how badly you want sunflowers, you're getting tomatoes. As we move on to verses 8 and 9, we see Paul expand upon this argument, and he puts it into more layman's terms for us. Paul promises us that planting seeds that will only benefit the flesh and worldly desires will reap fruit that corresponds with that. However, the consequence of reaping those seeds will only lead to our destruction. But in the same way, if we are planting seeds that are honoring to God, seeds that benefit the Spirit in our relationship with Christ, then we will surely reap a harvest both in this life and our eternal one. What I, don't want you to, uh, what I don't want to get lost on you all is the image that Paul is portraying here. This agricultural image of sowing and reaping really sheds light on the ridiculous notion of a farmer trying to outwit Mother Nature. Now, no self-respecting farmer would ever expect to plant one thing and grow something completely different. So Paul is asking the point, why then do we try to do this with God? The image of sowing and reaping also indicates the process of moral consequences. Every action has an appropriate consequence. If we give in to sinful nature, we will reap spiritual breakdown and destruction. If we submit ourselves to Christ and obey Him, then we will reap a reward, not just in our temporary lifetime, but in our eternal one as well. However, our fault as humans is that we become so consumed with this world, we get so caught up in the moment seeking our instant gratification, we forget there is much more to our journey in life. We become fixated on this idea that life is short, we need to live it on now so we don't miss out on anything. And in doing so, we often succumb to the self-centered, sinful actions of ourselves. We push Jesus aside, claiming that we can focus on him later after we've done all the fun things. Claiming that it's too hard to constantly follow Christ, and if we spend all our time trying to become better Christians, then we might miss out on doing something that is actually fun and interesting. So now I ask you this. What are the seeds in your lives that we are planting to please the flesh? Maybe we become so invested in certain sports or sports teams that we forget that when we attend those events, we are there to represent Christ and not cuss out the opposing team or team members. <laughs> Maybe we planted seeds of gossip, talking about people at work, just so that we can have something to talk about to kill time, instead of building those people up in love and encouragement. Maybe we're spending hours grinding out a video game or watching Netflix, instead of spending just a few moments a day in prayer and devotion with God. Maybe we're going to too many parties and having too much to drink, and the next morning we're sleeping in instead of being at church. Or perhaps we have planted materialistic seeds, dwelling on the fact that our clothes must have a particular logo on them for us to meet certain societal standards. Just because our seeds may not carry a negative connotation with the rest of the world does not mean that they cannot be destructive to our lives. You might say that you just love sports so much that you get caught up in the moment and you didn't mean it. You can't help yourself. Or you were only joking about the gossip, it was all in good fun. You really do like that person. Or maybe you just love that certain Netflix series or video game so much you can't put it down. 
Or maybe we just love hanging out with our friends too much and having a good time. We don't want to kill the vibe at the party, so we keep on keeping on. And oh, we just love our Nike swooshes and our little Patagonia logos, those saucy Adidas stripes, I know I do, because we know that if our clothes do not have those logos on them, then we might as well be wearing trash bags. Whatever our excuses are for planting those seeds, we do so because we have a certain love for them. We love sports, gossip, Netflix, all the stuff, the list goes on and on. Whatever you can think of, we love it. And we love these things because we have no problem making them the center of our attention. We prioritize them above everything else in our life. So where does that leave Jesus? Do we not love Jesus? Have we not proclaimed in our hearts and with our lives that we love Jesus? So should we not then look to prioritize Jesus with our lives and our actions? I'm not saying that some of those other things weren't bad, you know, sports and TV and video games. But what I am saying is we need to check our heart and really determine what or who our heart belongs to. Because if our hearts are in the wrong place, then we are exuding effort in our lives in areas where all we will get in return is pain and dissatisfaction. Paul makes this very clear. Whoever sows to please their flesh will reap destruction. I don't think it can get any more clear than that. Because where our efforts lie, so too do our hearts. So, are you willing to do the hard work? The work that isn't glamorous? The work that requires pain and sacrifice and frustration? Because we all know if you love something enough, then you will stick with it. Because when we truly love something, we are willing to make sacrifices in our lives so that we can achieve the goals we are after. So why then, if we know that we shouldn't be focusing all of our efforts and attention on these things, do we still do it? And I think... It's because these things are easy, and they require little to no effort on our part. They provide us with that instant gratification and perceived happiness that we are looking for in the moment. You see it all the time. Your favorite sports team wins a championship, and you are happy and content for that moment. But when next year rolls around, all you do is want another one. Sure, last year was great, but it's not this year. Or you go out and buy a fresh new pair of kicks, and then a few months later, the newest version comes out, and now you want those instead of the ones you just bought. I'm notorious for doing these types of things. I'll sit and research and fantasize about buying the next big thing, whether it's you know, a new hunting jacket or some golf clubs, whatever, I do it. And I just want the newest and best because part of me has become dissatisfied with what I already have. Even though the things that I have still work fine, they no longer bring me the same joy and satisfaction that they once did when they were new. It feels like we are constantly trying to fill the voids of our lives with newer and better things even though no matter what we fill the void with, it too will soon become obsolete and no longer bring us the happiness that we are looking for. The same things happen in our spiritual life. Some of us begin our walk with Christ unaware of what a commitment we were undertaking. We got so caught up in the initial joy and newness of our Christian faith that we failed to realize that being a Christian is hard and that Christ requires a lot from us. We then are caught up in the dilemma of living as Christ would have us to live or continuing to live as if we were still part of the world. We think to ourselves, why should I waste my precious time and energy living like a Christian? Because right now this lifestyle is really boring and it's cramping my style. So instead of putting effort and attention that Christ requires from us, we choose the easy route and revert back to living as if we didn't know Christ at all. But I want you to listen to what verse 9 says. Let us not become weary in doing good or in doing what is right. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I love this response from Paul because it reminds us 
Even though Paul was angry, he's encouraging a group of struggling Christians. Paul knew that what he was asking for and the things that Christ expects from us are not easy. However, those who continue to do good will eventually see the benefits of their efforts. Jesus Christ is more than some outdated cell phone or worn-out pair of tennis shoes. He is not some object that can be thrown away once it is no longer beneficial to us. And yet, this is how we treat our Savior, Jesus, when we grow tired of doing what is good and right. But I want you all to remember this. The fruits of our labor take time to mature, but once you have tasted them, you will be glad you let them grow. As we finish up the passage, we cannot forget Paul's closing remarks in verse 10. This is where Paul finally brings everything back full circle. He reminds us, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And one of my favorite pieces of this command is the phrase, As we have opportunity. Paul understands that the world is full of people who are in need of help, and it would be impossible for us to help every single person. However, it is possible for us to help those that we come into contact with. Whether it's the homeless person we see on the street, the elderly person struggling to carry some items to their car, or the large family in the grocery store who is a few dollars short of the checkout line. We come into contact with these types of people every single day, and more often than not, I feel as though we keep our heads down and keep on going with our lives. But Paul reminds us this. It is our Christian duty to do good and to love those who need it whenever possible. And we are to do this for all people. There is no asterisk next to the word all. Whether it is someone you like, dislike, someone of a different religion, lifestyle, or ethnicity, if we are given the opportunity to do good for them and show them the love of Christ, then we must. Paul also reminds us that this type of attitude especially includes other Christians. We are to love them and treat them with just as much kindness as anyone else. Now, some of you might be sitting in your seats going, duh, why wouldn't I be nice to other Christians? But some of the biggest arguments, disagreements, and wars have come from Christians with opposing theology and viewpoints. Fights within a family always seem to cut a little deeper, and the family of believers is no different. Paul was intimately connected with the Church of Galatia. It was probably one of the earliest churches that he helped to start, and it is no wonder why his concern for them was so great. For Paul, the communal love between the congregants of the church was just as important as how they treated the non-believers. Paul's vision of Christianity was more than evangelizing and discipleship. It was a continual process of community and understanding, how to love each other despite our differences. However, none of this is possible if we do not obey verses 7 through 9. We cannot be effective mentors, teachers, or Christians if we fail to obey God's commands for ourselves. How can we, in good faith, go around proclaiming a gospel if we do not practice it for ourselves? The process of becoming a mature and faithful Christian first begins within us. We have to be willing to do the hard work for ourselves. We have to learn to love ourselves and love Christ more than we love the materials of the world around us. And then we must learn to love others just as Christ loves them. There will come a day for us when we will have to sit back and evaluate the type of life that we live for Christ. When that day comes, will our faith look like a chia pet? Will we have planted our seeds on a base that lacked the nutrients to sustain spiritual life? Will our Christian walk be sudden, blooming only for a short moment when things were easy, and then dying off when the road got difficult? Or will you look back satisfied, 
smiling because you were able to do the hard work, tending to your faith daily in the good times and the bad, knowing that you served your God and others faithfully and sincerely. My challenge for you all as you go out this week is to spend some time with God assessing the areas in your life where you need to do more sowing. Where are the areas of your faith that need more work? Where are you trying to fool God with the things that you sow? And secondly, where are the opportunities in your life where God is calling you to do good for someone else? Who are the people in your life that need you to show them love and fellowship? If Paul were writing this letter to you today, what would his tone be towards you? Would he be aggravated and angry like in Galatians because he knew you were capable of so much more? Or would he be proud of the work you are doing both for yourself and for others? In a few moments, we will be singing the song, Build Your Kingdom Here. And this is a song about our yearning desire for God to break through and overwhelm everything around us. I want you to pay close attention to one line in particular, and it goes like this. You made us for much more than this. Awake the kingdom seed in us. Fill us with the strength and love of Christ. We are your church. We are the hope on earth. This is the message that Paul has been given to us this morning. As Christians, we should desire that God would come in and consume our hearts, our souls, our world, and everything that is around us. However, in order for that to happen, we must be the vessels for God's message here on earth. Paul has graciously given us the blueprints for how we are to act in order to fulfill these desires. It requires community, commitment, love, and patience. We must never grow tired of doing what we know is right. We must never grow tired of doing the work that God has called us to do. When it comes to our walks with Christ, we are capable of being so much more than Chia pets. It is time for us to start living like it.